You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. John chapter 20, verse 19 to 31, very popular text. On the evening of that day, Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He just took that Sunday off. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those, and now he's talking to us, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would continue to allow your anointing to be in this room. We pray, Heavenly Father, that the words that are now spoken would find their place in our lives where we need them, that we wouldn't try and take in the whole thing, but we would hear the part of it that would bring healing to our life. Pray that you anoint me to make preaching easy, and I pray that you anoint this congregation to make hearing your word a delight. In your holy name we pray, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Hopefully this is good because I had a lot of time of quiet yesterday to plan for this sermon. The series that we're in right now is Jesus, the Hopeful Life, the life that invites. And today we're going to talk about the life that invites our doubts into the resurrection. Next week we're going to talk about the life that invites our failures into the resurrection. And then on Mother's Day we're going to talk about the life that invites our disappointments and hardships into the resurrection. Easter is a multi-week celebration. We, in our culture, exhaust ourselves by gearing up for a single day, and then when it's over, we have this letdown. Easter day is a door that opens to a season of celebrating Easter. Easter Sunday is a door that opens into a season of celebrating Easter. We have to pace ourselves because this is going to take us to the day of Pentecost and we're going to celebrate the spirit falling on the church and reincarnating Jesus into the people I'm looking at right now. Amen. 
And then we're going to celebrate ordinary time because for a Christian, what is ordinary is life in the Spirit of God. For today, we're going to talk about how Jesus invites our doubt into the resurrection. Our doubt gets an invitation of Jesus. We don't have to try and deny that they're there. We get an invitation into the resurrection, and our doubts also got an invite. Like Our doubts are the plus one that we bring with us into the resurrection. This text takes place on Easter Sunday, the first day of the week at evening. These are important details because, again, John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning which means that John is rewriting for us a new Genesis. The Bible starts with in the beginning, and John's gospel starts with in the beginning. And so John is telling us that there's now a Genesis part two that's going to be greater and more powerful and more long-lasting than Genesis part one. Amen? And so now Jesus has risen from the dead, and now the detail at the end of the gospel is it's the first day of the week, and it's evening. Because everything God does in Genesis, it says the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. So God begins each day at night, and that's when he speaks creation into the void is at night. So John wants you to know that Jesus has risen from the dead, and now he's about to appear to his disciples. And he wants you to know he's appearing to them on the first day of the week at evening. Because now that recreation has happened in Christ... It's now about to start happening in us. So if you're here and you feel formless and void and you feel that the sun will just not come up, Jesus enters that space. That's when he shows up. He always speaks light into the darkness. And so our darkness isn't something that we need to try to rebuke. Our darkness is something that we should sit with eager anticipation in because Jesus is always coming when it's dark. As Sophia says, when the sun goes down, it gets dark, and when it comes back up, it's light again. And then she says, it always comes back up, right? Girl, you better preach the gospel. You're two and a half, and and I'm putting that down in my introduction because that's a better point than any I'm going to make. It always comes back up again. Jesus comes to a gathering. It is vital for us to see this progression of church. The very first church service happens at a tomb. The very first place where Jesus shows up, where prophecy shows up, where announcement shows up, where running and losing our breath show up, where angelic visitations and gifts of the Spirit show up. The very first place that all of that happens on a Sunday is at a tomb where there's supposed to be dead, rotting bones, and now there's a Sunday morning service happening. From the tomb... That's the first floor of what we now call the church. From the tomb, the next place is the home. The disciples gather at the tomb. They run, they leave, they come back, they meet Jesus, and then they all gather in a home. And Jesus comes into that place. So you leave the tomb and you go to a home. And that's where Jesus shows up next. And then for the next 2,000 years, we've created what we now call the church, the sanctuary. So we leave the tomb to go to a home. And then we left the home to come to a church. But one day, we're going to leave the church to be gathered into Jesus, who is our empty tomb and our home and our church anyway. So we're just in this flow of having more space to gather more people to proclaim the gospel a lot louder until the day when the gospel himself shows up. 
But it starts on a tomb. And if you've seen any horror movies, and typically somebody buys a new house or something, and they didn't realize that it was built on like an Indian burial ground or something like that, a little detail you probably should have found out before you go, and they realize it's haunted because it's built on a tomb. That is exactly what this place is. We are haunted by the Holy Spirit because the church was built on an empty tomb where somebody was dead and he's now alive again. I'm going to work you so hard today. So hard. By the way, Stephanie never has to ask my permission to do what she just did on, during worship service. Amen? She, Stephanie shows us how to get everybody involved in a nice way. I will take a play from your playbook and be like, Salem, isn't Jesus great? There we go. So much nicer than I am. Here. The first invitation is that Jesus invites our doubts expressed as fear into the resurrection. So whenever we live a life in fear, First of all, the amount of teaching that has gone into something being wrong in your life, if you have anxiety or fear, that it's just a simple decision to choose not to be afraid. We're going to continue to be nice. That's not ever going to be spoken from here. Because if somebody is afraid, if somebody's dealing with anxiety, if somebody has that worldview where it's easy to get you to feel a sense of unease. That is not something that we have chosen to feel, and it's not something we can just choose not to feel. We need Jesus to somehow show up in it, even if the doors are locked. Amen? And so, spoiler alert, there's something wrong with all of us. That's why we deal with this stuff. It's not like there's something more wrong with somebody who's afraid, as if the person who's angry is not as bad as the person who's afraid. None of it makes sense. Here, I want you to know, what we do is we bring the best we can to Jesus, and we offer it to him. So if the best you can do is get in here and you're afraid, just offer him that. Because Jesus is the only God in all of religious literature, folklore, and legend that joyfully receives the terrible things that we offer him. All I can do is offer you my fear. All I can do, and that's why David says, offer him a sacrifice of praise. Because sometimes we can't. Sometimes praise is a sacrifice. Sometimes it flows freely. Have we ever felt that before where praise just comes out of you like living water? And then other times it really is a sacrifice because of all the unease and turmoil and disappointment and frustration we may be feeling in that moment. And Jesus says, offer me all of it. It's invited into the resurrection. Your fear is something that Jesus wants to defeat, but he defeats it by inviting it into the resurrection. Our fear needs to experience the resurrection. We don't rebuke it and try to separate ourselves from it, and then we come. We come with all of our garbage and all of it. That's why Jesus said, behold, I make all things new, not I make all new things. He makes everything broken down new. There's, there's this balloon in my house that is now turning into a defeat for me because Sophia brought it home, and it was filled with helium. And I said to Jacqueline, we should just pop it and throw it out because it's annoying. Because she doesn't play with it. It just shows up in all these random places all the time. We, we had an Elmo once that it was filled with helium. And that creepy perv just like 
would just like sort of like helium into like bedrooms and stuff. And we're like, well, what is going on here? I don't like helium balloons at all because they just, they get to that point where they're like halfway, <laughs> kind of like a lot of our spiritual lives. <laughs> Some of us are like that helium balloon where we were in the rafters filled with life and energy and slowly it just feels like Jesus doesn't pop the balloon. He fills it with helium again. He doesn't make all new things. He makes all things new. So bring all of your garbage. Bring all of your fear into the resurrection with him. He invites our doubts that are expressed as fear into the resurrection. And I want to vindicate Thomas real fast because the fact that we call him Doubting Thomas is plain wrong because every single other disciple doubted. And here is exhibit A, B, C, and D. Matthew 28, 16 to 17. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some... This is after the story that we just read. After Jesus has revealed himself for 40 plus days, he finally is going to ascend to heaven, and it says, now the 11 disciples, the people who knew him best, were still doubting him. And it says some, it doesn't say one doubted him. Thomas, I'm trying to help you out, if you can hear me. I'm trying to help you out. Mark 16, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And if you look in your Bible here, this is the oldest manuscript, and it ends here. The very first manuscript that we have of the Gospel of Mark, this is how the Gospel ends. It ends with the word afraid. Later manuscripts have revealed like almost uh, um, like a deleted scene to the end of Mark. And maybe if we go to that, there will be some positivity. But sadly, no. Mark 16, verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Jesus is on the warpath after he... He's like he woke up from a nap and was cranky. That ever happened to anybody? Like you actually get some sleep and you wake up and you feel like garbage for a split second. And so everyone is just wrong no matter what they do at that point. I'm just kidding. Jesus is not like that. Or maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Luke chapter 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. So this is Luke's version of the text we just read. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. This has happened before. When they were in a boat and Jesus comes walking on the water, it says, there's a ghost. And now again, after Jesus has now not walked on water but walked on death itself, walking towards them, they say he's in the room with them and say, it's a ghost, which any of us would have said. Please, let's not be super spiritual here. If somebody who I saw die, if I turned around and was like, I think I know he's alive, and he's standing right here, I'd be like, ah, it's a ghost. <laughs> and I would run. I was, like, I, it was the, one of the first nights since I think I've been married that I slept in a house by myself, and I'm 
almost, I'm like 99.5% sure this didn't happen, but I feel like one of Sophia's rocking chairs moved a little closer. <laughs> like, I woke up at like 2.30 in the morning, and I'm like, all right, let's, let's, let's get a light on here or something. We're terrified of these things. Jesus was scaring people. He couldn't scare them to death anymore because he rose, so he's just scaring them now. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you think? Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you here anything to eat? I think he's just getting stressed now. He's now like shown a hundred times. It's me. And they're like, we still don't believe. And he's like, can I just, I just need to eat. And then we can, we can rewind. I'm getting hangry. Let me eat. We'll rewind. We'll try to do this again. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate before them. The disciple, it's not just Thomas. It's not just Thomas. All the disciples needed to see his hands and his side to believe. This is the story of us. This is what we do. It's on Easter. Fear and doubt exist in this room after the gospel announcement has been made. And Jesus comes into a locked room. What does this tell us? There's a lot written about Jesus coming into a locked room. One of many wonderful things that I read is this. Jesus wants you to know that he's no longer in the room or not in the room, but he's actually become the room itself. Another one said, real bondage is not when people lock us into a room and we can't get out, but when we lock ourselves into a room from the inside and refuse to leave. Jesus enters a room to unlock it from the inside out. Jesus speaks peace, and he gives the spirit before he does anything. He enters this room. Nobody believes him. And the first thing he does is he speaks peace. He speaks peace to them. And this is going back to John 14, 15, 16, and 17, when he says over and over again, in the world you will have tribulation, but in me you will have peace. And so here they are in locked doors. Here they are in bondage, and in the locked room, he frees them before the doors are ever unlocked. This is now what the church's earthly life is like. We are living under the perceived bondage of sin and death, but the doors, we have been set free before anything's unlocked, just like Jesus, if you listened last Sunday, just like Jesus left the tomb before the stone was ever rolled away. The stone was rolled away to show that the grave lost somebody it had before the stone was ever rolled away. The stone was rolled away to tell the guards that you were guarding something that wasn't there anymore. And so locks don't have to come off. And bars don't have to open for you to be set free. We need to know this. Freedom is not the release from trying circumstances. Freedom is the ability to have joy in them. Freedom is the ability to have hope in them. If freedom is my circumstances changing, then I'm still a slave to the need for my circumstances to change. But if my freedom can happen while doors are still locked, if Paul and Silas could be singing before there's ever an earthquake, that is real freedom. That is real freedom.
That's what Judy has. Gone through a lot of stuff and you're still smiling. You're making us cry, but you're still smiling. He speaks peace and he speaks the spirit over them. He anoints them. He doesn't anoint us in spite of our flaws. He anoints our flaws. He doesn't speak peace over the part of us that doesn't have flaw. He speaks peace over the whole bunch of us that has flaws and good sides and bad sides. He doesn't anoint you in spite of your, your, your brokenness. He anoints your brokenness for the work of the ministry. That's why his wounds are what make people believe, because it's our flaws when they get anointed and re-narrated by Jesus. That's where our real ministry comes from. That's why you don't see me hiding from myself up here. I'm going to be very honest about the fact that like, I, I need pastors in my life. I'm the first one at my own altar calls when we have them on Sundays. Because the reality is what he anoints is our flaw. What he anoints is our weakness. What he anoints is our brokenness. And that preaches better than anything that we could flaunt or boast in at any time. David writes in Psalm 104, When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you Listen to this carefully. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And then in verse 35, he says, Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. He starts by saying, if you breathe on creation, creation can be renewed. But when it comes to sinners, blot them out. And Jesus shows up in the upper room to to teach David a lesson. And this is why we have to reread the Psalms after the resurrection. Because Jesus says, David, you're right. If I breathe over creation, creation can be renewed. But what you just said about sinners isn't true. I can breathe over them, and their sin can be removed, and they can remain. This is why Jesus, whenever he's faced with a person that has a demonic presence, he always separates the evil from the person but raises the person to new life after. Because Jesus has the 2020 vision to see the difference between the evil acting on you and you. So Jesus in the upper room, now keep in mind, this is John in the beginning, right? John is writing a new exodus. And so now here's Jesus on the first day of the week and it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This word for breathe only shows up two other times in the Bible. It shows up in Genesis 2-7 when it says, and God breathed into Adam the breath of life. And then it shows up again in the Valley of Dry Bones story, where God breathes on the Valley of Dry Bones, and the prophet hears the rattling sound of dry bones as they begin to come to life. The only other time it shows up is when Jesus breathes on the doubt and the fear that he's experiencing. And there's that same rattling sound, but this time it's joy. And one of the things that somebody said was, the service on Sunday should be marked by our proclamation of the resurrection. And the way that we proclaim the resurrection is that people in the church hear the sounds of dead bones starting to rattle again. And so he says to them, if you forgive others their sins, they'll be forgiven. And if you withhold them, they'll be withheld. And I thought, oh my goodness. If, if this is what it sounds like, I really hope people don't have bad days because if we can withhold forgiveness from people, imagine walking around with that kind of authority. I did a lot of reading on this, and it's very simple. What Jesus is saying is this. Now that you're a people filled with the Holy Spirit, you should be able to go, and you should, and this is 
the best line, and we have read a lot on this text, and there's a lot to say about it that we're not going to say here, but here's one amazing line. One author said this, Jesus is commanding us to speak comfort where there's affliction and to speak affliction where there's perceived comfort without Jesus. So what he's doing is he's telling them, the Spirit is going to lead you to be able to find somebody who has Christ and affirm to them that they've been forgiven, and it's going to lead you to find people who are very comfortable without him and make sure you, they, when you leave, they feel more uncomfortable until they get him. That's what he's giving us the authority to do, is to let people know without him, you should feel uncomfortable. And we live in a very politically correct culture that wants everybody to be nice, but there is a space, and listen to me carefully because I'm going to say something after this, there's a space where we should ruffle feathers. There's a space where we should call stuff out. There's a space where we shouldn't leave with people thinking the way they're living is okay. You know, I'm actually proud of you for not cheering too loud about that. I was nervous that everyone was going to get really excited about that part because some churches do. But here's the reality. When we speak... Even when we speak affliction, even when we try to make people uncomfortable sifting through words, first he gives us peace, then he gives us the Holy Spirit, then he tells us to do that. So any kind of rebuke we ever give should be coming from a person who first needed peace to be spoken to them and should be coming from a person who first needed to be anointed by the Holy Spirit to do it. If our rebuke of others comes out of our own angst, our own disappointment, our own frustration, then what we're doing is projecting, we're not proclaiming. It has to come from the reservoir of peace be with you. When we speak to our children, when we speak to our friends, when I speak to you, when we speak outside of the church to other people, any kind of exhortation should be coming from a person who first knows if he didn't speak peace to me, I would need this exhortation myself. I need this, spe- this peace to be continually spoken over me. And then from that place, that's when, we speak, that's when we speak to others. So it should come from a place of gentleness, not anger. And it should never, we should never rebuke without resolve. The resolve is these bones can still live. That is always the resolve to any of our critiques of anybody else. When you critique somebody, even if it's not a spiritual moment, when you're just critiquing somebody, because in life sometimes we have to do that. When we're done being critical or when we're done rebuking something or when we're done exhorting or when we're done correcting, it should, that should never be the final thing that that other person hears. What they need to leave with is the hope that these bones can still live. If we're more excited to put an exclamation point on the critique and we don't give it the prophetic resolve that it needs, we're not functioning in the calling that Jesus just gave us in the upper room. Every time we correct, it should be met with, by the way, these bones can still live. By the way, this correction means that you're accepted, you're not rejected. Because he comes into a room where we try to lock him out and he lets us know, even when you try to lock me out, I'm still coming for you. So we should never try to lock somebody out that Jesus has already invited into the resurrection. The next thing, Jesus invites our doubts expressed as logic into the resurrection. And we have to be careful with this because to whatever extent people have faced violence, 
violence from the kind that we saw on Easter morning, unfortunately, in Sri Lanka and things of that nature. I think yesterday, another one at another synagogue, like a smaller shooting. When, when, we, when we see that kind of violence or the violence uh, that demeaning and dehumanizing words can do to somebody in an argument in a relationship, like when, when, when arguing goes from typical back and forth to just utterly broken and dehumanizing comments about somebody and their life and their body and all kinds of other things, when people experience violence, when violence has been done to them, and maybe you're one of those people, it is extremely logical to say what Thomas said. I saw him get brutally murdered in front of me. See, what makes it hard, like no one had trouble believing that Lazarus was Lazarus after he rose because Lazarus didn't die violently. No one's saying, hey, I was in the presence of Lazarus, but I need to see like evidence beyond that. They believed it was him when they saw it, but when they saw Jesus, they didn't believe it was him because the way he died was violent. Violence is the enemy's strongest weapon because violence perverts reality on every level. Violence perverts reality on every single level. And so Thomas, like many of us, when he saw violence, he says, I need to see the wounds because I need to know that what you're saying happened is greater than the violence that I saw. And guess what? The world is still saying this, and I'm still saying this. I'm still saying, like, I wake up on Easter morning, and I'm like, God, you've got to be kidding me right now. I'm about to run into church all excited and joyful. We got flowers. We're going to turn the lights yellow and stuff like that. We're going to be taking pictures. It's supposed to be this festive day, and I wake up to 300 people getting blown to pieces on Easter Sunday. I'm the one saying, as a pastor, can these bones live? We cannot rebuke people for their doubt, especially, and most of the time, we don't even know if they've received any kind of violence in their life. It is logical for them to say, I hear what you're saying about hope, but I need to see some actual evidence because what I've seen and what you're saying, they don't line up. Thomas is called the twin, which is funny because that's not his name. His name is Judas. But John gives him a nickname in the Bible because he doesn't want us to mistake him for Judas Iscariot, as you can understand why. So John, in picking a random nickname for Judas, he picks Thomas. And in his writing, calls him Thomas. Thomas is probably reading it like, that's not my name. But John gave him the name Thomas because the name Thomas means twin. And I think John gave him that name to let us know that we're his twin. That we are more like Thomas than anybody else. And it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Thomas is honest. He's transparent. He's real. He's not faking his Christianity. He's not trying to appear better than he really is. He's saying the truth. He's saying, Jesus, this is the best I can do. If I don't see your hands and I don't see your side, I'm not going to believe in you. And here's the funny thing. There's no record of the disciples telling Jesus that, that that is what Thomas said. But when Jesus shows up, he says, Thomas, come here for a second. I want to show you something. See, when Thomas was saying I need to see his marks in order to believe. Thomas didn't know Jesus was there. Jesus was there when Thomas said it. And the minute Jesus lets Thomas see him again, he says, come here, let me show you. This is what I do to violence. 
I don't remove it, I re-narrate it. There's still violence for a little while longer, but look at my body. Sri Lanka is on my body. Sandy Hook is on my body. 9-11 is on my body. He's not going to make it like it didn't happen, but somehow his body and his wounds are going to re-narrate violence, and we're going to see glory where there was pain. Thomas never touches him. Thomas drops to his knees right away and says, my Lord and my God, because he sees his marks on Jesus' body. He sees the violence of the world around him on Jesus' body, and he realizes that his, Christ's wounds are re-narrating the wounds that we're seeing every day. All the violence we see is one day going to be completely re-narrated on the marks of Jesus and on the marks of the church. And so that's where our hope is. That's why our hope has to go beyond circumstance. Thomas was absent the first time Jesus showed up, and he showed up to everybody else. He showed up to the other 10, and they all believed in him when he showed up at that point. And this is what a good church does. Thomas is invited the next, they they gather one week later again. They're starting to gather on Sundays now. And it says in Luke that they were reclining at a table when Jesus showed up. So look what they're doing. It's only been two weeks, and they're already showing up on Sundays, and they're already eating when they show up. They're already doing what Jesus told them to do. They're saying, we don't know where he is. He keeps showing up. We don't know what's going on. So the best we can do is get together and have this meal that he told us to have. And every time they did, he showed up again. And here's the second time he shows up. The doors are still locked because even when they hear the proclamation of the gospel, we don't heal right away. We have discouraged more people with healing than we've encouraged by it because we make them think if we have an altar call for healing and you leave unhealed, something's wrong with you. But the gospel, the gospel narrative of the resurrection itself is saying before they knew Jesus rose, they were behind locked doors. And then after they knew it was him, guess what? They're still behind locked doors because it takes time. Don't rush the person that you're ministering to. Walk with them. Don't tell them there's something wrong with them. Enter their scars with them. Jesus isn't criticizing the doors being locked because he doesn't have to, and neither should we. Our proclamation can go beyond any wall that somebody has put up. This community invites Thomas, and they're not upset with him. They're saying, Thomas, just gather with us again. Let's just keep doing this until he shows up for you. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. We don't bring people to church to get them saved. We bring people to church so there's a chance they'll meet Jesus. And if they don't, we'll bring them back and not tell them something's wrong. And if they don't come for four or five weeks, we're not going to get mad at them. We're going to go to them because they can come here to church or we can be the church and go to them. Because guess what? Jesus shows, oh, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up inside the locked doors, right? But also he stands at the door and knocks. So he's inside and he's outside. So if somebody gets in here, they can meet him. And if somebody stays out there, guess what? They can still meet him. And maybe, and maybe Jesus shows up in the house knowing he's also knocking on the door to teach those of us in here how to hear him and answer him. Jesus knocks on the door of his own house. He enters through what we've locked, and inside, he teaches us how to hear him knocking. And so if somebody's in here, they're going to hear him. And if somebody's out there, they're going to see him. 
because Jesus is omnipresent, which means if you're locked inside, if, I'm skipping my notes now, if you're locked inside, if you've locked yourself in, maybe, maybe you've locked yourself out of your own self because of what's happened to you. Maybe the locks on the inside are your past, or maybe the locks on the inside are your fear of the future. But whatever it is, Jesus shows up in that. Doesn't do violence. He doesn't unlock doors. He shows up in that. And guess what? He is all, he's not, he's not outside. He is outside. When Jesus is inside, he's not inside like we're inside. He is the place called inside. And when he's outside, he's not outside like we're outside. He's in, a, he's in the place called outside. So here's the reality. If you're locked in and you're bound up by fear, when Jesus shows up, everything you're not experiencing is there with because outside is now inside. And for people who don't like to go to church, we need to have the faith to believe that what's inside is also outside. We're the ones. We're so busy looking for ministry opportunities in people's lives that we don't realize we may already be in somebody's life in a way that would be like us coming through a locked door. They didn't technically invite us in, but we just happen to be a part of it, and then something's going to happen, and they're going to turn around, and instead of seeing you, they're going to see Jesus. And maybe, maybe our job in their life isn't to proclaim to them anything but teach them to hear that faint knock at the door and teach them to go open it because Jesus is inside and he's also coming inside. Oh my gosh. I wish I thought of this earlier. I would have been able to preach it better. Jacqueline needs to go away more often. Maybe this is a ministry. Maybe this is her ministry. She goes away on the weekends... I'm just kidding. But mate, no. <laughs> she just leaves Sophia next time. I'd be like, no, 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 that's not, that's not. <laughs> Jesus invites our doubts expressed as fear into the resurrection. Jesus invites our doubts expressed as logic into the resurrection. And then finally, Jesus invites us to invite doubts into the resurrection. Stop trying to get people to not doubt. Serve their doubts. Serve their doubts. Be the thing that they're doubting. I don't believe he's love. Love them then. I don't believe he died for me then. Serve them to your own hurt. I don't believe he was wounded for my transgressions. Let them smack you and then turn the other cheek. Be the thing that they're doubting for them. This is now the call of Christianity. Jesus incarnated himself once in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he's incarnated himself again in the womb of the church. We're now the second incarnation of Jesus. We need to be, Jesus said it himself, in the same way my Father sent me, I'm sending you. How did God send Jesus? In the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. And how does he send the church? In the Holy Spirit overshadowing the church in Acts chapter 2. So we need to go out the way that Jesus does. This is how Jesus handles doubts. 
he rebukes them at the same time as he's revealing himself to the doubts. It's Peter in the water and Jesus saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? As he's extending his hand at the same time. We've treated rebuke like it's a distance thing. I'm rebuking you until you're willing to come over here, but the rebuke of Christ is his grace. The rebuke of Christ is his mercy. The rebuke of Christ is that he shows you his wounds, and now you have to believe that he's real, even if you don't want to. The way, what does Paul say? Do good to those who do evil to you, and it will be like heaping hot coals on their head. The way we rebuke is by serving. The way we rebuke is by dying. We have gotten this horribly wrong as a church for all of our years. Not this church, the church. We rebuke people who aren't in here. Jesus is out there with them. When the veil was rent from top to bottom, the covenant was not where it should have been. And when we have that kind of attitude, Jesus is saying, guess whose locked doors I don't walk into? A church that rebukes from a distance. You're the only ones who don't have me if that's what you're doing. I can't wait to hear how you all talk about this at Life Transformation Groups. The absence of God is now filled by the Spirit, the gathering, and the table. We are now the dynamic community. Look at this. We just, I skipped ahead, so I won't re-preach, but he comes through locked doors, but then he stands at the door and knocks. And we said the reason he does that is because he shows up inside to teach us how to open to him on the outside. But watch this. When, when he raises from the dead, Mary is trying to touch him, and Jesus says, don't cling to me. But then he says to Thomas, come and touch me. Here we go again. Why? It's the difference between the word cling and the word touch. Don't cling to me. Why? Because people are going to be tempted to cling to the God they want him to be. And Jesus has to remove that grip so that we can touch the God he actually is. We have to learn to do that. So many of us are clinging to the Jesus he was on Thursday. He's not the same anymore. He died and he rose and now he's different. And Jesus is saying, Mary, the me that you anointed for burial with the perfume in the alabaster box, it worked. You don't need that burial ointment anymore because nobody you know is going to die anymore. But I'm different. I'm more real than I was. Don't cling to the me you knew. Don't cling to the me that got you out of your last trial. Don't cling to the me that I was when you were having your best season in life. Don't do that. He's bigger than all of that. And so he's teaching us to not cling to the God we want him to be or the God he used to be so that we can touch the God he actually is. And so we need to experience that. And we need to give other people the space and the hospitality to experience that. Final verse. Peter and John are having a race to the tomb on Easter Sunday. John gets there first, and then in John 20, verse 6, it says, Then Simon Peter came. So John wants you to know that he beat him. <laughs> like in all of the holy writ of the Bible, John wants you to know, just so everybody knows, I'm faster than Peter. I got there first. But Peter does something that John couldn't do. Then Simon Peter came. So John got there first, but then it says, Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. 
Interesting, John got there first but stayed outside. Peter saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he's still letting you know how fast he is. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. Look at this. One disciple's joy got them to the location, but their fear kept them from going in. Another disciple's skepticism got him there slowly, but when he got there, he had the faith to go in. They both needed each other. Peter needed John to run first. John needed Peter to go in first. This is what the church is. They're not rebuking each other. You should have been faster. Well, you should have went in. That's not what they're doing. They're having life together. One is able to get to the place, but he's too afraid to go in. The other one's able to get there because the first one got there, but then he's able to go in, so the first one who got there can then go in. Some of us are fast, but then when we get to the moment of decision, we balk. Some of us are slow, but when we get to the moment of decision, there's boldness. We need each other. We need each other to celebrate Easter. One of the reasons why Jesus tells Mary not to cling to him is because an individual is not meant to cling to him. A community has to. Don't st- we're not going to have this relationship out here, just the two of us. i got to go to where everybody is so everyone can touch the hem of my garment. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Jesus invites our doubts expressed as fear into the resurrection. Jesus invites our doubts expressed as logic into the resurrection. Jesus invites us to invite the doubts of others into the resurrection. We're invited in with all of our flaws. And when we experience him, our job is to invite others in with all of their flaws, not telling them to get rid of those flaws before they can come but inviting them in a hot mess. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there may be some here who have locked themselves in, trying to keep the world out. For thousands of reasons. I pray right now that they would experience you in the room that they've already locked, speaking peace and speaking the Holy Spirit over that formless and void darkness. For some of us, Father God, the best we can do is to sit in the cell of our own making, of our own locking, and wait for you to come. And we're grateful that your gospel tells us you will and you do. Maybe some of us are on the outside, not sure if we should go in. We might be in the room this morning, but maybe we're on just on the outside of fully investing ourselves into all the trust and faith it takes to believe in you. And so we're knocking on the door, afraid that somebody might answer. I pray that those, would re- those people would realize that you're knocking on the door with them. That even if they're outside, you're outside too. And even if they're locked inside, you're inside too. 
And I pray as we come to your table this morning that whether we're locked in or we're locked out, we would recline at table and eat this meal you told us to eat while we wait. We proclaim your death until you return. All of our questions go into these baskets, Father God. Why is there violence? Why did things happen to me? Why does the world seem upside down? I feel guilty for feeling joyful sometimes because I know there's so much suffering or I feel like I'll never feel joy because all I feel is suffering. We bring all of that to the table this morning. We bring all of it to the table. And we just ask, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would give the next piece of an answer to those of us who need it. Don't explain everything to us in one moment. It's more than we could ever handle. Tell us the next thing we need to know when we come to your table this morning. Just the next thing we need to know. Here we are, Father God, in a room, doubting, fearful, excited and joyful, just like the disciples. And here you are in the midst of us, in this bread and in this cup. In the spirit we feel, and you're the room itself. You're the chair that held us up this morning. You're the doors that opened for us this morning. You're the greeters that greeted us this morning. You're the songs that we sang this morning. You're the word that went forth this morning. You're the embrace of someone else when we had our meet and greet this morning. You're the meal we're about to eat, but you're also the one coming to the table, and you're the table. I pray that we would just realize how absolutely permeated we are by your presence, and that would somehow lift our hearts above what is locked. And then you would anoint us to either gently knock on somebody's life or to somehow be already in and to speak peace and to the Holy Spirit over their lives. How can we do this? Because we know on the night when you were betrayed, you took bread. When we locked you out, you took bread and you broke the bread. And you could have said, this is my body broken by you. But you said, this is my body broken for you. I pray that we would say that to those who hurt us. That somehow in you, we would know that if we're breaking, we're breaking on behalf of the world. If we're suffering, we're suffering on behalf of the world. If we're going through something, it's not just about us. It's about somebody we don't know. And then you held up the cup. And you could have said, this is my blood which is shed by you, but instead you said, this is my blood shed for you. As often as you eat and as often as you drink, do this for the remembrance of me. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would perform a miracle this morning and that you would fall on this meal and you would make it the holy sacrament of the body and blood of Christ. The food and drink of new and unending life in him. God, we need to know that you can take what is broken and make it food that can bring life because we're broken. And if you can make bread that is broken food, you can make us food to give other people's life as well. And so we pray that you fall on these broken pieces and we pray that you also fall on these broken pieces. Fall on the broken bread and fall on our broken lives and make all of it the body and blood of Jesus. In your holy, precious name we pray. And everybody said, amen. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. If you feel like you want to spend a little time at the altar and pray, feel free to do that.
Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.